Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we choose a saga, offer a summary and discussion of the plot, and then we put it on trial at the Saga Thing. But you know that already, because you're here with us in the thick <laughs> of it with Ale Saga. Are we really in the thick of it just yet? This is only the start yeah. of our third episode on the saga. I mean, we're still in Norway, yeah. Andy. That's true. But if you squint really hard and look, somewhere out there on the horizon, you might see the faint outline of Iceland, and maybe even of Ale himself. Oh, they're out there, John. And they're getting closer. In fact, if you listen closely, you can almost hear the waves crashing on the shores of Borgafjord. Mm-hmm. Which suggests there are some big changes in store for Kveldulf and his sons in this episode. Indeed there are. All three will be embarking on their own journeys by the end of this episode, but they're not necessarily going to the same place. Right, and we should say that uh, one of the things you might hear crashing on the shores of Borgafjord is a coffin. Ah, uh-huh. see, now you're spoiling things. Just a little uh, just a little teaser, a little hint for people. I didn't, I didn't say who or what was in there. <laughs> but before we cross over into that undiscovered country with them. Oh, very nice. We need to review what happened last time. You ready? My finger is in my ear, and I'm tightening my vocal cords. <laughs> Last time on Ale Saga. Thorolf Kvildofsson joined the court of Harald Tanglehair, cupping a place of respect among Harald's champions. He becomes fast friends with another young go-getter named Bard Brynjolfsson, whose family history includes a couple of surprises. For one thing, he and Thorolf are second cousins through their mother's families. Well, sure. But that pales in comparison to the dark secret he and his father have swept under the family rug. That's right. Bard's father Brynjolf has two half-brothers, Herrick and Hrerik Hilderidusson. But they still want what they see as their fair share of their dear departed daddy's loot. But Bard hands over diddly squat to his erstwhile uncles before going off to join Harold's merry band of champions. Bard and Thorol were among the happy few clustered in King Harold's ship at the Battle of Halsfjord, where the fighting is fierce and the cost is high to make Harold the king of all Norway. Bard is among the men to pay the piper, but he names Thorolf as his heir before he exchanges his vast northern landholdings for six feet of southern earth. He what? He, he hops the twig. He gets 86th. He's up Sticks Creek without a paddle. He dies, is what I'm getting at. Very nice. When Thorolf takes ownership of Bard's lands, he begins living the high life in the high lands. King Harald is jealous of Thorolf's wealth and power, but so are the Hilderidusons, who see themselves as having been ousted from their rightful place in the family. They once more ask for their fair share, and when Thorolf gives them the Finnmark-sized Bronx cheer instead, they begin a whisper campaign against him that begins to turn King Harald against his former chum. What's... Oh, God. (laughs) I was really pressing into my ear there. (laughs) Well, verisimilitude, you know. I need to relax on that. No price is too great. So what's clear from this review is that Thorolf is in trouble. He's clumsily positioned himself as King Harold's equal, and King Harold isn't very happy about that. No, uh, and to make matters worse, Harold appears to be particularly susceptible to the influences of untrustworthy men. Herrick and Rarik Lidaridison's slender accusations have the king seriously reconsidering his relationship with Thorolf. Now, I think we said it before, but it, it bears repeating. This opening section of Ale Saga introduces one of the more important themes of the narrative through Thorolf's rapidly declining relationship with the mercurial King Harald. 
Now, when I first read this saga, I was really struck by Harold's poor judgment, and I was frustrated by how temperamental and gullible he could be. But mm-hmm. I, I guess that's kind of the point, isn't it? That's how we're supposed to feel. Yeah. I mean, Ale's saga is about a lot of things, and Ale's own biography is obviously at the center of that. But so much of the plot revolves around the character's interactions with kings. Mm-hmm. Harold Fairhair is the first of many kings will encounter. In some ways, he's going he's gonna, to right, set the hard drive. Yeah. Right? He sets the tone of the audience's relationship with royalty in the saga. Yeah, and that, for that reason, it's worth paying attention to the author's handling of each king our protagonist meets. John Hines has a great essay on this subject, actually. It's, a, it's appropriately mm-hmm. titled Kingship in Ale Saga. And according to Hines, King Harold is depicted as an antagonizing force that drives out from Norway all the independently-minded characters. Right, which, you know, is true. I mean, we saw this in the first few episodes as Harold begins the conquest of Norway. Uh, remember the kings, uh, Herlog and Herlog of Namdal, right, the brothers from Chapter 3? Mm, that's excellent. Yeah, good example. Uh, Herlog chose to close himself up in a mound and die nobly as a free king rather than submit to Harold. Right. And then his brother, King Herlog, uh, he loses his title and then hands over the kingdom to Harold, effectively mm-hmm. placing him at another man's mercy. Exactly. Now, this is this is why Kvolo's refusal to either join Harold or to join the resistance against him is so important. On the one hand, he rejects the resistance because he already suspects an unfavorable outcome for them. Right? He's not willing to go down with the ship. Mm-hmm. He's right about that. But on the other hand, he has no interest in submitting to a man like Harold, whose lust for power and wealth will be the cause of so much suffering. Yeah. And we can see the author's discomfort with Harold's brand of kingship throughout this section. We mm-hmm. talked about Harold introducing feudalism and vassalage in our last episode, but... We neglected one of the more important passages on the subject, and to kind of really drive home that point, I want to share it now, if it's okay with you. Oh, go ahead. Oh, thank you. It comes from chapter four, and it reads, Mm -hmm. Once King Harold had taken over the kingdoms he had recently won, he kept a close watch on the landholders and powerful farmers, and everyone else he suspected would be a likely rebel. And he gave them the options of entering his service or leaving the country, or a third choice of suffering hardship or paying with their lives. And some had their arms and legs maimed. Yeah, mm. I, that's charming. I mean, you can understand why Kvolov might be reticent to have his sons working with this guy. Yeah, that's very true. But but Harold's paranoia is well-founded at this point. I mean, it's well-founded, but it's also, you know, sort of self-creating. Right? Absolutely. I mean, he's stripping these landowners and powerful farmers of their property and titles. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that a few of them might be seeking a bit of revenge against him. And whether people submit willingly or by force, I mean, here's the reality of the new world they live in. In each province, it says, King Harold took over all the estates and all the land, habited or uninhabited, and even all the sea and the lakes. All the farmers were made his tenants, and everyone who worked the forest and dried salt or hunted on land or at sea was made to pay tribute to him. Right. Now, for for a a proudly or once proudly independent people, this is a major disruption to their way of life. Right? I mean, their entire sense of social and political order is up, upended here. Yeah. And also their sense of self, right? Those once proudly independent people are now subject to a hostile authority that wants to squeeze them for whatever they're worth. It's ridiculous. Right. Now, now I know this. we've made this point before, but the parallel to William the Conqueror coming to Anglo-Saxon England is really appropriate here. Uh, just like Harold, William took ownership of everything, including mm-hmm. the forests, right, and including anything he decided to call a forest. Right. That was a big issue for anyone who made their living hunting and gathering in those forests or farming on land that he decided to call a forest. Uh, if you want an interesting read, you can check out the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle entry on King William's death. Right Now, this is written 20 years after he took the throne. It tries to balance praise with blame, but honestly – 
even after 20 years, there's a lot more blame there than praise. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, it even it even talks about those forests, right? noting that he established laws about these forested territories reserved for hunting, so that whosoever slew a hart or a hind should be deprived of his eyesight. <laughs> right. That's harsh. That's nice. Right. I mean, there's a lot of other bad stuff in there as well, including, as you said about Harold, like squeezing every last coin out of his yeah. subjects. Yeah, there are a lot of parallels there, which is interesting. And and I think, again, that's kind of the point. King Harold mm-hmm. is established from very early on as a figure of kingship to be wary of. Well, And there's a kind of preset um, idea about the bad behavior mm-hmm. of new kings, right? That this is what the consequence of a new king coming in and taking over is. Yeah. And so there's a kind of template that the authors may be working from here. Right. And, and the author, presumably the infamous Snorri Sturluson, provides us with a <laughs> variety of reasons to be suspicious of Norwegian kings seeking to take control of an independent people. Oh, see what you did there? Uh-huh. Now, you're not so subtly hinting that Snorri is not so subtly hinting right. at the situation in 13th century That's Iceland. Right. Uh, so we have a lot of unsubtlety here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't really touched on that context yet for this saga, or at least not directly, but we really should. Yeah, I'm extremely tempted to do that right now. Uh, so, I mean, so much of Ale Saga is wrapped up in 13th century politics and the actual life of Snorri Sturluson, a somewhat ruthless character in his own right. So, Yeah, no, he played a major role in the conflicts that led to the collapse of the Commonwealth. Yeah, and he was the sworn vassal to King Hakon IV of Norway. And mm-hmm. like Thorolf, his relationship with King Hakon sours over time, eventually leading to his assassination at his home in Reykholt, which we visited. Huh. Yeah. No, you know, I mean, we keep talking about this, but I'm, I've always thought we at some point need a saga brief about Snorri's life. And now I'm starting to feel like maybe it needs to show up sometime during this uh, odyssey through Ale Saga. Mm. Yeah, I could not agree more. And in fact, I kind of was hoping that you might say that because I've already started preparing it. <laughs> oh, excellent. It just fits so nicely. Uh, good. Then let's let's table that for now. Mm-hmm. We can go into a lot more detail on the connections between Ale Saga and the events of the 13th century at another time. Excellent. Uh, but we do have a saga to get to here. Yeah, yeah. I, I Again, I'm tempted to do it right now, but uh, there's so much to say about the subject, we'll, we'll just delay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do have to move forward into this episode. So let's say that uh, Harold represents, for now, a version of kingship that the author who may very well be Snorri Sturluson, mm-hmm. uh, wants his audience of 13th century Icelanders to consider. Right, This is this is what kingship is, in other words. Uh, as King Hawkins' influence grew in 13th century Iceland, and the leading chieftains were confronted with that choice of submitting to a Norwegian king or joining in the resistance, this first section of Ale Saga provides an interesting perspective on the inherent dangers of working with or of standing against kings. Well said, well said. Uh, now, with that bit of context out of the way, I think we should tell people what they can expect in this episode. Get your pressing finger ready, Andy, because it's time to hit the button. In this episode, tensions rise as the Hilda Riedersons further undermine the relationship between King Harold and his most accomplished vassal, Thorolf Feldolfsson. When Thorolf refuses to abandon his growing company of followers, Harold strips him of his land and titles. Building on his previous successes and evolving relationship with King Varavid of Quenland, Thorolf barely bats an eye. Instead, he continues living a lavish lifestyle up in the north, almost daring Harold to do something about it. A spark is struck 
when Harold suspects Thorolf of interfering in the collection of Northern tribute and rumors fly about a plot to seize the Northern realms for himself. That spark catches fire when Harold dispatches the menacing brothers Sigtrick Travelquick and Halvard Travelhard to intercept Thorolf's cargo ship laden with expensive goods from England. Can Thorolf resist the temptation to strike back at his former lord, or will he be consumed by the fire of vengeance? How will his decision affect the future of his family? And who's that bald brute with a trollish figure on his way to visit King Harold's court? Find out as Saga Thing takes on Ale's Saga, chapters 16 to 27. that sounds fairly ominous. Uh, something tells me this episode won't end on a happy note. Well, there's only one way to find out. Let's jump in. Part 7. Reversal of Fortune. Now, when last we saw Thorolf, he was heading home from yet another profitable excursion into Finnmark. Working closely with his newfound ally, King Faravid of Quinland, Thorolf ravaged the Corellians and arrived back at his farm in Sanness with a huge amount of booty. <laughs> and that's when he learns that the Hildaridesons have spent the winter slandering him to the king. Mm-hmm. But Thorolf rather foolishly dismisses the news, saying, The king will not believe such lies even when he's told them, because I've no reason to want to betray him. He has treated me grandly in plenty of ways, and never badly. <laughs> it is nonsense to claim that I would ever do him harm, even if I had the chance. I would rather be his landholder than have the title of king in the same country as another man who could make me a slave whenever he wanted. See, that's just Thorolf being silly. He's 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 really putting a lot of faith in King Harold being a just and benevolent king. Uh And where's the evidence for that? I mean, this really suggests he's not a terribly good judge of character. Uh, For all his good qualities, Thorolf is kind of adult. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, sure, he's big and bold and plays the role of the Norwegian hero, especially with the uh, the velvety chocolate voice you've given him. Well. Uh, but he, he lacks his father's uh, pragmatic sensibility, I would say. Tragically, yes, that's, that's how Thorolf works. But uh, perhaps our author is suggesting that survival in a king's court <laughs> is going to take a lot more than good service and a sunny disposition. Mm-hmm. Either way, the Hildaridesons have done a lot of damage to Thorolf's reputation. Right. And I want to also point out that there is another possibility here, which is that Thorolf, maybe he doesn't want to be king in the same kingdom as Harold, mm. which is you know reasonable at this point because yeah. we know what happens to kings in the same kingdom as Harold. But the Finnmark is not part of Norway as Harold envisions it at this point. That's quite right. true. There's, and I- there's an entire northern world that Thorolf could right. become and king Right, and I think it's worth, it's worth considering – this saga kind of paints Thorolf in a positive light, but is it possible that he's actually working against King Harold's interests? I mean, he is certainly, he's acting on his own behalf, um, negotiating as an equal with kings in the north. Yeah. Now, they are small kings. They are petty kings, yes. But he is very definitely meeting with them and working with them as an equal. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's certainly, again, we're not taking Harold's side here. But you understand why what Thorolf's doing looks like setting himself up as a petty king. Absolutely. Uh, anyway, when when summer comes, Thorolf loads his ship with the tribute he's collected in Finnmark on Harald's behalf and heads to Trondheim with his band of 90 men. And when he gets there, 
Olver Hump approaches him to explain that uh, Harold might not be terribly excited about the visit. Thorol figures he won't be given much time to plead his case before the king if Harold already suspects him of treachery, so he asks Olvir to intervene on his behalf. Which Olvir does the following day, mm-hmm. but it doesn't go as well as either man would like, and that leaves Thorolf in no better position than when he arrived. So in the end, Thorolf decides to meet with Harold himself, which is a calculated but risky move. And, you know, we've just been saying, you know, what an idiot uh, Thorolf is, but he actually plays this pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he approaches King Harold at dinner and explains that he's brought the tribute from Finnmark. So, in other words, this is a public forum, and he immediately shows how much money he's bringing to Harold. Right. Uh, and he's brought many other treasures as well to honor the king. Harold replies, I expect nothing but good from you, Thorolf, because I deserve no less. And then he suggests that there are actually conflicting stories about Thorolf's loyalty. Why does Harold sound old there? I feel like he's still a younger man here, isn't he? I thought I was—he was barely controlling his rage. That was the ah, kind of—he's—he's like, he's, oh, he's, so he's impotently out. angry. <laughs> oh, you know, okay. speaking through clenched teeth was what I was going gotcha. for. Yeah, Thorolf adamantly denies these rumors, telling the king that people who make such claims to you are less your friends than I am, which is true. <laughs> but this is also the problem of a royal court. Mm. Those who are closest to the king often have the greatest influence. Right. And Thorolf spends most of his time away from court, romping about the north with an impressive band of followers, making alliances with foreign kings, collecting mm-hmm. as much wealth as possible, and living a very lavish lifestyle when at home. It's not surprising that Harold is uncomfortable with Thorolf's success, regardless of the noble intentions that he claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the next day... Thorolf officially turns over that tribute from Finnmark, uh, and when he's finished, he presents Harald with several fine beaver skins and sables as a personal gift to his lord. Hmm. Now, the crowd is impressed by the gesture, but Harald isn't moved. Apparently he doesn't like beaver. <laughs> Rather than warm to Thorolf, offering his hand, his friendship, or a, a gift of his own to reaffirm their bond, which you would expect, Harald claims that Thorolf had already taken his reward from the tribute before arriving in court. And this is serious business because Mm -hmm. Harold has now accused Thorolf of treachery in front of the whole court very publicly. On no evidence. Right. Now, obviously, Thorolf is taken aback and he says, The king knew the way I treated him when I was staying with him as one of his men. It strikes me as strange if he considers me a different character now from the one I proved to be then. Right. Now, Harold responds, You dispatched yourself very well when you were with me, Thorolf. I think the best course is for you to join my men. Serve as my standard bearer and defend yourself against the other men of mine, and no man will slander you if I can see for myself, day and night, the way you conduct yourself. All right, so this is worth talking about because this is the moment that determines Thorolf's path going Mm -hmm. forward. Yep. What's at stake here, and what does he gain or lose by accepting this offer? Well... I mean, Harold is correct. The best way for Thorolf to prove himself would be to stay at court and to serve as Harold's standard bearer or maybe lapdog once mm. again. Yeah, but that's not an appealing option for obvious reasons. It's it's a clear demotion. Mm. Thorolf would basically be starting over. I mean, in some ways, yes. He would still have his land holdings in the north um, and his access to income granted by the king. At least I assume he would. Um, 
but Thorolf knows he'd have to give up his loyal band of men that he's collected, right? And he's got quite a band of men. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of the point, I think. Regardless of whether or not Harold actually believes the Hilda Reedersons, mm-hmm. he's threatened by Thorolf's success and growing strength. Remember that passage I read earlier about how he kept a close eye on anyone who might threaten the stability of his still somewhat precarious rule over Norway? Well, based on the men he has available to him and the wealth he flaunts, Thorolf is now a legitimate threat. And genuinely, yeah. people like him. That's that's a recipe for disaster in Harold's mind. Right. Now, that's all true, which is why Thorolf should take this opportunity seriously. Uh, he's got to deal with the personality in front of him, right? That, mm-hmm. that Harold is not behaving like a stable or loyal person. He's behaving right. like a paranoid king. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it may seem like starting over and being standard bearer is a dangerous job, as we're going to see later on in this episode. <laughs> Absolutely. But at least Thorolf would have an opportunity to restore the king's trust in him. Right. The Hilda Reedersons would have no power over him then, right? or at least less power. Mm-hmm. He might even be able to destroy them, since Harold listens to whoever is standing next to him and whispering into his ear. But as we've said, Thorolf isn't terribly savvy when it comes to dealing with kings. <laughs> He's not going to accept the offer, is he? No, of course not. Uh, and to be fair, what Harold is doing here is a tremendous affront to Thorolf and his reputation. Uh, I mean, when we say it's demotion, we mean a serious demotion. This is not like a small reduction in rank. Accepting this offer would be accepting a slap in the face in front of everyone whose respect you've worked so hard to gain. Uh, But on the other hand, yeah, what's a little slap in the face between friends when the alternative is losing almost everything? Right. Well, Thorolf acknowledges that Harold has a right to decide how he wants to handle the situation, but he refuses to submit. He says... I will not hand over my band of men for as long as I can provide for them, even if I have to live by my own resources alone. And with that, he departs with his men, all 90 of them, (laughs) which, you know, is kind of the problem in the first place. Right. And so Harold and Thorolf's friendship comes to an abrupt but uh, not unexpected end. And it's an ugly end to what was uh, once a beautiful and we have to say mutually beneficial relationship. Absolutely. Um, but we kind of knew this would happen from the start. right? Uh, I'll remind you of Kvelov's parting words to Thorolf back in Chapter 6. Uh, he said, Avoid aiming too high or contending with stronger men than yourself, but never give way to them either. So the question is whether Thorolf heeded his father's advice here. Yeah, I think he caught the, caught the last part, but I don't think there's any doubt he ignored the first part. <laughs> uh, whether he did it on purpose or not is another question. Yeah. Well, at this point, it doesn't matter because Thorolf bungled the opportunity while at the same time making the best of it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. that. Uh, (laughs) Thorolf is a very capable man. Uh Uh, So King Harold moves quickly. He strips from Thorolf all the land, titles, and tribute rights he had previously granted. Yeah, which means that the hotly contested farm at Torgar in Halogaland and all of the property that once belonged to the dirty old Björgolf is now up for grabs again. Yeah, no, it's not actually up for grabs again because King uh, Harold gives it all to Harak and Harak Hildurydison. Oh. The uh, sons of Björgolf with uh, poor Hildurid. Yes. And I'd like to feel this is a form of justice for them because I, I, I want to feel bad for them. But I, I just... But, but John, yeah. they, they don't deserve our sympathy at this I point. I know. Whatever the circumstances of their birth. And I, I, like you, I feel bad for the hand that they were dealt in life. But... They don't earn anything through positive action. They sneak and connive and narfy their way <laughs> to the top. 
And it's the most pathetic way. Right. I just, I can't I, stand I it. I agree. I mean, they are the unfirths of this saga. But the, <laughs> the problem with that is that, you know, again, the, the hand they were dealt was not dealt to them by fate. It was dealt to them by Thorolf. I mean, this is the man who stepped agent in from fate, outside. Well, he stepped in from outside the family line on their side, yeah. right? He's from a different side of the family. He steps in and he absolutely disenfranchises them from the lands that were theirs or that at least they could make a legitimate claim to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's I, I agree. We're not supposed to feel sorry for them. We're not supposed to sympathize with them. Um, and sometimes their behavior works, right? Sometimes lying and cheating, it's the it's the way to go. It really pays off in the political arena. Yeah, but that doesn't mean we have to like it. And I don't. No, I, I don't either, I have to say. Well, anyway, when Thorolf hears about the new arrangement, he loads his ship with as much as they can carry away from Torgar and moves his entire household to Sannes, mm-hmm. that property that he inherited from his father-in-law, Sigurd. And he lives there with a very, very large following, providing for everyone out of his own pocket, as if nothing had changed. Good for Thorolf. Yeah, I wonder about all these uh, freeloaders he's got hanging around him, though. He's got a lot of guys hanging uh, But that seems to suggest that maybe Harold wasn't wrong to fear Thorolf. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, again, I don't think it matters if Harold believed the claims of the Hildredersons. There's no doubt that Thorolf's growing band of followers, his personal wealth, his regional influence, his alliances with kings up in the north, mm-hmm. and the admiration that he's gaining from everyone at court with each successful expedition, that represented, I mean, we have to say, at least a potential destabilizing force to Harold. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we may not like his methods, but his decision to undercut Thorolf's meteoric rise by whatever means necessary, mm-hmm. though it is underhanded and ignoble, it, it's actually quite shrewd on the part of Harold. Mm-hmm. And now that he's no longer formally connected to Thorolf by vassalage, he's going to need to keep a close eye on this threat from the north. Right. I mean, you really wonder at this point whether the problem between these two, uh, whether the the uh, whispers in his ears from the Hildredersons, whether Harold believes them or seizes on them as a useful yeah. way to start undermining this potential rival. I the, the more I read this saga, the more I like to think that he's seizing on an mm-hmm. opportunity. It it means that we have to then reassess Harold a little bit, right? We've been saying, you know, that he's he's basically a fool who's easily mm-hmm. influenced. Um whether this is just a kind of convenient thing for him to grab onto or not, uh, yeah. it's hard to say. The saga the doesn't ever wink at us about this, right? We're not That's kind of how sagas either. work, yeah. though, right? They never tell you the character's right. actual motivation or what's going on in their mind. Right. They just tell you the action. So it's up to yeah. you to read between the lines to figure out why they're doing what they're doing. Absolutely. Uh, now, in this case, we have to say, I mean, it's, you know, so everything at this point kind of the tension ratchets up, but then immediately things go calm. The yeah. summer passes quietly. Thorolf lives in style up in Sannes. The Hildurudusons finally claim what they consider to be their birthright. They're now in charge of tax collection in Hologoland. And hmm. while most people at court think this change is ill-advised, no one says anything for fear of the king's power. And so here we are again. Again, the saga author is warning his Icelandic audience, mm-hmm. and anyone who cares to listen, about the dangers of living under an absolutist monarch. It's hard to be honest, even when it's important if that honesty might contradict the king's own agenda. That's right, exactly. Um, and just as everyone suspects, the Hildurudersons are not terribly good at their job as tax collectors. <laughs> uh, remember that we were originally told of them that they were kind of, of uh, under average size. They yeah, were clever slight. but small. But they just aren't physically intimidating the way that Thorolf is, both mm-hmm. charismatic and sort of physically frightening. 
When That's winter right. comes, they march into the mountains of Hologolan to collect tribute from the settlements there, as Thorolf had done the previous year. They bring only 30 men with them, which is a perfectly valid force, but a small force compared to the 90 men Thorolf has been bringing on his, ex- his expeditions into the Northern Territories. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, the Sami are not impressed by the Hildurittisans. Uh, and because they don't respect these two boys pretending to be men, the Sami offer considerably less tribute than they would normally give. Yeah, and meanwhile, Thorolf continues living as if nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. And that same winter, Thorolf heads up to the north, marching with 100 men this time straight into Kvenland, and he meets with his new pal, King Faravid. Mm-hmm. They raid together throughout the north, and especially in Karelia, and by the end of winter, they've got more goods than they know what to do with. Now, Thorolf brings his share home to Sandnes, and then sends his men out to fish for cod and herring, so he can begin stocking up on provisions to take care of this growing household. Well, at this point, we have to call it more of a compound. Uh, <laughs> yes. Thorgil's Boomer, and uh, you may remember from last time, this is Thorolf's most trusted member of the household. Uh, Boomer is given charge of a huge Nor, uh, an ocean-going merchant ship. Uh, this one is filled to the brim with stockfish, hides, ermine, skins, and furs. Essentially everything he doesn't need from the winter expedition up north. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of stuff and no doubt extremely valuable, especially outside of Scandinavia. Which is why Thorolf tells Thorgils to take the ship to England, where he can trade and buy cloth and other household goods. Mm-hmm. I, and I really love the detail that we're given here, because we're, we're told that Thorgils sailed the ship south, skirting along the coast, then putting out to sea for England. And it doesn't say where exactly in England Thorgils stops, but it, it makes sense that they would have put in at Jorvik, one of the more Viking-friendly destinations in England in the late 9th century. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And the, the trading mission is a great success. Thorgils moves all the goods and loads the ship again with English wheat, honey, wine, and cloth, so that by autumn, he's setting sail once again for Norway. Right. Now, back in Norway, things are getting a little more complicated for Thorolf and Thorgils. Uh, that same autumn, the Hildurittisans arrive in Trondheim with the tribute they collected up in Finnmark. Mm-hmm. Harold sort of watches them with a with a glinty eye as he, they deliver the goods. And when they finish, he says, have you handed over all the tribute you took in Finnmark? Uh-oh. <laughs> because <laughs> this is both much less and much poorer than what Thorolf used to collect. See, now the Hill of Reasons are going to learn, right? Uh-huh. But uh, <laughs> but they're they're always ready with an answer. Yeah. And they claim that Thorolf ruined their efforts at collecting tribute. Uh, so what what was the voice that we used last time? Yes, the, oh, it was the... the uh, uh, <laughs> do you want me to do it? You want to, you want to do it? Well, there were 30 of us in Finnmark last winter. And then Thorolf arrived with 100 men. We heard he was planning to kill us because you had given us the office that he wanted for himself. <laughs> yeah, boss. We saw no option. But to avoid confrontation, so we couldn't go as deep into the mountains as we would have liked. That's what happened. Yeah. They're such scumbags. <laughs> yeah. Thorolf raided throughout the whole territory, and the Finns paid him tribute. And he they gave did. them guarantees that he would defend them from you in the future. Is that so? Indeed. Now, we also heard that he intends to proclaim himself king in the north. King in the north? That's right. And if King Harold is looking for any proof, well, all he has to do is intercept the ship that Thorgil's boomer took to England. If you want to find out the truth, you should spy on Thorgil's movements when he comes back, because I can't imagine that so rich a cargo ship has ever been loaded onto any trading ship in our day. I think if truth be told that every penny on board was yours. See, they're good at this. 
They're very good. And Harold, realizing that the Thoral situation might be getting out of hand faster than he'd ever imagined, once again falls for everything the Hildereidersons say. Things are about to get messy, folks. Part 8. Travel quick and travel hard. Hmm. I'd rather not. I, I prefer to take my time and enjoy the scenery, you know? I really like to dig in and appreciate the moment when I travel. I see. So you're more of a J.R.R. Tolkien than a C.S. Lewis. Uh, what do you mean by that? I assume, yes, I've oh. always thought so, but... Um, you know they were friends back you know, back in their, uh, in their you, days at Oxford. Come on, John. Uh, yeah, of course you know that. I'm, I'm, but remember, there's, there's listeners here. <laughs> ah, oh, yes. I thought you were just talking uh, to me. I was introducing a topic. Uh C.S. Lewis had this uh, annual trip that he liked to make. It was basically just a hiking trip that he would spend several days kind of uh, hiking around England. Uh, and his hikes, uh, C.S. Lewis's way of hiking was to travel uh, tens of miles in a day. I mean, he would he would hike eight to ten miles in the morning, hmm. stop somewhere for a pint at a, at a pub, maybe grab some lunch, do another ten miles or so, stop for another pint and a little sandwich hmm. or something. Uh, and that was his kind of way of traveling. And he sort of Freaking would plan hard. out. Well, he had it quick and hard, right? Traveled, figured out everywhere he wanted to go and was sort of just banging through it. As a, 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 a as somebody once said of me on a hike, he, he acted like the landscape was in the way. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, J.R.R. Tolkien went on exactly one hike with him, uh, got about 50 yards and stopped to admire a flower and spent the next 10 minutes examining the stamen and pistols of the flower. Wow. Well, C.S. Lewis proceeded to get redder and redder in the face. <laughs> <laughs> because the time was passing and the sun was rising and they hadn't moved. And that was oh, the one great. and only time they ever went hiking together. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Um, but uh, travel quick and travel hard are actually nicknames. They are indeed. Here, uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, chapter 18 opens with a quick introduction of two brothers, Sigtrig travel quick and Halvard travel hard, two mm. of Harold's best men. Well, they're more like henchmen, really. Mm-hmm. We are told that Sigtrig and uh, Halvard are... They, they handle all of the king's missions, both in Norway and outside it, and and that they had many dangerous voyages both to execute people and to confiscate property from people whose homes the king had ordered to be attacked. Right. Definitely henchmen. These are <laughs> these are like combination of repo men and hitmen. Yeah. Uh, and these are the uh, strong arm enforcers of the king's will in Norway. Right. When yeah. they come knocking, you don't want to be at home. Uh, and they're very good at their job. Uh, they travel with a large band of men. And while most people don't like these two, which is understandable, Harold thinks quite highly of them. <laughs> of course he does. Oh, and the saga mentions that they were outstanding runners and skiers, capable of outsailing other men and strong and shrewd in most respects. See, I love that it mentions skiing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I never I never had an appreciation really for uh what that might mean in actual terms until we watched that movie uh the the last king that Sunday <laughs> you know remember the Sunday evening after yes, uh, I do. the Kalamazoo conference was all yeah, over it was we great were, it's a great movie. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing quite like sitting down with a growler full of excellent beer after a long conference watching some of the best action scenes on skis in film history. Really some great. of the best. Yeah. Interesting. So do you have a quick rundown for us of other films featuring exciting action scenes on skis? Well, there are lots of them. I mean, James Bond is always on skis. That's you what I was thinking of. George Lazenby did it first and on Her Majesty's Secret Service. But uh, Roger Moore, God, oh, he was always on skis throughout <laughs> the, the late 70s and early 80s for some reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, I vaguely remember uh, Pierce Brosnan did it as well. 
Yeah, I'm not a huge James Bond fan, uh, so I can't speak to the quality of the respective ski chases. Well, they're meant to be exciting, John. Ah, meant to be, see? Gotcha. Uh, Oh, and let's not forget the greatest ski movie of all time, John Cusack's 1985 classic Better Off Dead. (laughs) This is pure snow. Have you got any idea what the street value of this mountain is? Yes, infinitely, infinitely quotable movie uh, oh, with, with some skiing in it also. Yeah, I think so we are counts. showing our age here, though. <laughs> yeah, so that's fine. It, but um, yeah, nothing. I think the best what, skiing scenes in any movie are going to be the eventual biopic done of John Paul II. <laughs> really? What happens with John Paul? Oh, he spent World War II. Um, spent, he spent his days uh, studying in a basement to be a priest and then uh, uh-huh. would, go, would, would ski around in the evening shooting Nazis. Uh, oh, while he was great. living in Nazi-occupied Poland. He had an amazing life. Oh, I love it. Well, when uh, Pontifex gets to John Paul II. Uh, oh, I can't wait. Quite exciting. Oh, my God. I know it's killing me. that they. I mean, there's, what, almost 200 popes in between uh, them yeah. and him right now. But when they get there, it's going to be worth it. They'll be very old by the time they get there. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you were telling us about Sick Trick Travel Quick and uh, Halvard Travel Hard. Right. Uh, so if you're wondering about their nicknames, the first thing I'll say we just kind of covered the meeting a few minutes ago. Um, I, they're quick and ruthless. Uh, the second thing I'll, is that I'll, I'll wait till the end of the episode to say a, a bit more about them and some of the nicknames we've come across in this episode. Excellent. Yeah, there are more than a few interesting ones in this episode. There are, but we're going to save them for later. Uh, okay. For now, we're moving forward. King Harold calls Sigtrig and Halvard in and tells them to find the ship Thorgil's Boomer in sailing and take it. Bring it and everyone on board to me, except the crew. Let them go in peace if they do not try to defend the ship. Now, why wouldn't they try to defend it? The ship is full of cargo for the maintenance and survival of Thorolf's household. Wouldn't they be fools not to defend it? I mean, what's he I thinking mean, here? Yes, but I think there is an understanding that you you are supposed to stand aside when the king's men want to board your ship. Even when they plan to take everything? See, I, I don't I don't like that rule. Well, you're not supposed to like it. <laughs> it's not cool, <laughs> and, man. And for the record, neither does Thorgils. Uh, it doesn't take Sigtrick and Halvard long to find him. And when they do, they pull up alongside the cargo ship and board it by force. They are fully armed. They are prepared for battle. But Thorgils had no reason to expect violence from anyone along the shoreline of Norway. So he wasn't really prepared to resist anyway. Yeah. See, this sucks for everyone on board. The Travel Brothers hop on board, capture the crew and abandon them on shore with no weapons. And they're left with nothing but the clothes they were wearing. And they have to watch as this ship full of all that English honey and wine gets towed out to sea by Halvard's ship. See, that's so that's that's a depressing situation. It um, is. I mean, it could have gone much worse. At least they weren't killed. Well, I mean, I guess that's some consolation, but they are stranded now in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, but there's always a boat passing by that time of year. Uh, and before long, they find a ship willing to take them. Uh, but rather than go home to Sannes, which is quite a bit further north, they stop at Kveldolf's farm. Ah, Kveldolf. See, we haven't heard from him in a while. How's how is he getting on these days? Oh, he's just dandy. Uh, of course, he's eager to hear news of Thorolf. And after Thorgil's boomer gives him the update, he just shakes his head and says that things had turned out pretty much as he'd suspected. And I would not bother much about the loss Thorgil's has just sustained if there were not more to follow, he says. I suspect that once again, Thorolf will fail to realize his limitations in the face of the overwhelming force he has to deal with. That's how sad. Kveldolf has to just sit back and watch his son slip further and further away with each passing day, 
knowing that he's powerless to save him. Well, I mean, he is trying to help. He, he tells Thorgils to relay a message to his son. My only advice is to leave the country because he may be able to do better for himself serving uh, the king of England or Denmark or Sweden. Yeah, see, and that's actually excellent advice. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, Thorolf ignores it. When Thorgil's boomer returns to Sandnes and reports on the loss of the ship and shares Kveldos' message, Thorolf just shrugs it off, saying, It's good to have a king to share your money with. (laughs) (laughs) is Is that our first notable witticism in this saga? Yes, yes, it took a long while to get to one. Uh, I know we're not far into the saga yet, but I'm shocked it took this long. Well, I mean, you know this saga doesn't lack for notable witticisms. It's just this opening section maintains a pretty serious tone. It does. But fear not, we'll be overloaded soon enough. Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, For now, though, Thorolf is put in a bad situation by the loss of this cargo ship. He doesn't seem to mind, at least on the surface, but it forces him to buy new provisions to support his household. And he says that his farmhands would not be dressed as smartly as he had planned. Wait, so he's been dressing his farmhands up in smart outfits to this point? That's right. (laughs) That's nice. Yeah. Little jodhpurs and plus fours. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) So he has to, the situation is bad enough that he has to sell off some property and mortgage others. But Mm -hmm. once he does that, he more or less maintains the same lifestyle he enjoyed before. Which speaks to how wealthy and powerful Thorolf has become, right? He can take a loss like this. Oh, absolutely. And the saga tells us that he now attracted even more men to his household than before. And that he spent the winter throwing the most extravagant feasts imaginable. Right, as he acts as if nothing had ever happened between him and the ill-tempered king just to the south. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, 10 out of 10 for panache, but not great planning, Thorolf. Yeah, yeah. this show of wealth and extravagance may attract more followers, and I'm sure it makes Thorolf feel better about the situation. But when a king like Harold seizes your lands, offices, and then your cargo ship from England, well, the least you could do is pretend like it hurts. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. But maybe Thorolf really is the king in the north. See, you just wanted me to play that sound effect again, didn't you? I mean, I, I kind of did because it just—it seems like every time I say it, you're going to have to play that sound effect. That's—I mean, I—I I don't know how. What, what am I supposed to do? You say right, king, right. king in the north, king in the north. <laughs> and I got to play it. <laughs> uh, but how else does Thorolf think this ostentatious show of success is going to read down south? Well, Thorolf has never been good with optics, clearly. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, He's basically, I mean, he is at least circumstantially confirming everything the Hilda Ritterson said about him. Yeah. And and do you think that he's actually doing this on purpose? Is he trying to show up Harold now or, or is he just blissfully unaware of how this looks? No, I think first one, then the other, right? I mean, he began in ignorance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think honestly that, you know, although we can absolutely say that Thorol's trajectory was clearly eventually going to end up with him as a petty king because in fact, if not a name, he was one. Right. Uh, but I think he did achieve that in ignorance, right? I mean, most of this was achieved through inheritance, first from Bard and then from his father-in-law Sigurth. Um, I don't think he intended for that to be the case. But when Harold took it badly, um, he then got the bit between his teeth. And now he does seem to be trying to annoy Harold. I, I, I feel that way, too. You know, it does feel a little bit like this, especially this uh, this this 
uh, display of uncaring about having been robbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm the bigger man here, right? I'm the one who can afford. You need to rob me to survive, but I'm just yeah. fine. I think that's right. And if there were ever any doubts about his feelings toward Harold's kingship at this stage, Thorolf clears that up right away in spring. He brings out one of his biggest longships, and yes, he has <laughs> several longships. Yes, he does. And he prepares it to sail. And this particular longship is humongous and holds more than 100 men, which mm-hmm. he, of course, decks out in the finest war equipment. Yeah, that's uh, not unlike a king might do, perhaps? It's almost exactly like a king might do. So he sails south from Sandnes, hugging the coast for a while. But interestingly, as he leaves Halogaland and enters northern Trondelag, he steers the ship out to sea so far that they could barely see the mountains. Mm-hmm. But they're still headed south. Yeah, no, we know he's headed for Denmark, but uh, this detail about them sailing out to sea that far in their southerly voyage, mm-hmm. it's an interesting point. As you said, he doesn't leave the shoreline until he enters Trondelag. So why might he choose to turn out to sea at that point, we wonder? I wonder. Why would a man who the king sees as a threat sailing along in a huge military ship full of 100 men that are armed, by the way, why would he want to avoid the shoreline when entering the king's territory? It's almost like they're trying to sneak by unnoticed. Yeah, no, I think you I think you uh, win the Cupid doll there. Uh, yes, they do um, mm-hmm. sneak by unnoticed. They sail all the way to Oslofjord without anybody spotting them. And in Oslofjord, they learn that the king is also in the area. Uh, which is, this area is called Vik in the saga, Uh, but that he'd be traveling to Opland in the summer. They also learn that no one knows where Thorolf is, which is good news. Oh, that's excellent news for Thorolf. And with the wind at their backs, Thorolf and his men sail further south to Denmark and then into the Baltic Sea where they spend the whole summer raiding. And when autumn comes, they then head back to Denmark and prepare to go home. Oh, no, 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 Thorolf isn't done raiding yet. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, he's not. Uh, he's just getting started, actually. Yeah, now, Thorolf learns about a large cargo ship captained by a man named Thorir Thruma, one of King Harald's men in charge of a large estate Harald liked to stay at when in Vik, which is where he'd been that summer. Mm-hmm. Since it was such a large estate, and the king had recently visited, the cargo ship is full of supplies like, oh, for example, malt, flour, and honey. Hmm. That sounds a lot like the cargo ship that Harold sees from Thorolf the previous autumn. It does, doesn't it? It really uh, does. And Thorolf is very much aware of this parallel. Uh, <laughs> Thorolf and his men ride up alongside Thorir's ship, taking them by surprise. Thorir surrenders and is put ashore. Hmm. Again, right, the parallels continue. Uh, this provides Thorolf with a brand new, fully stocked cargo ship to replace the one he lost. See, that's almost exactly what happened to Thorgil's boomer. Of course, and Thorgil's boomer is there, presumably offering uh, advice about how to make all the particulars line up. <laughs> right. Now, now you think that Thorolf would be content with this balancing of the scales, but he's not quite finished getting his revenge just <laughs> no. yet. After seizing the cargo ship, they sail north into Sweden, to the mouth of the river Gotha. Right. Now, we, uh, we skipped over to the start of this section, but Halvard Travelhard and Sigtrig Travelquick are from this part of Sweden. They're actually related to King Harald on their mother's side. Their father was from the Gotha region. And while Halvard and Sigtrig are off gallivanting around in the king's business, their younger brothers, Thord and Thorgir, stay at home near Gotha and manage the family farm. So uh, do they have any cool nicknames? Travel something? Uh, not that I know of, no. They're not really? mentioned in the saga. Really? Nothing like uh, Thord travel not so much? 
and Thorgir travel <laughs> to the fields and back. No, nothing like that. Hmm. Well, nicknames or not, this does not bode well for Thord and Thorgir, the lesser travel brothers. Right. No, uh, Thorolf is lurking out there just beyond the shore, biding his time. Ooh, ooh, hold on a second. Before you continue, we're going to need some Jaws theme music for this part. What, do you just have like a synthesizer over there somewhere with all this different stuff over there? That's actually appropriate. So Thorolf anchors his ship nearby and waits for nightfall. And when it's dark, they quietly row the longship up the river toward the Travel family farm. And they arrive unnoticed just as daybreak approaches. It's a tense scene and very cinematic. I see a quiet farmhouse set back from the river. Behind the house are rolling hills. No mountains snow-capped mountains uh, there are snow-capped mountains in that area near the river gotha no i don't think so but that doesn't matter this is the movies john we can do whatever we want right have you seen what they do with the uh with denmark and vikings I mean, last i checked denmark is pretty flat okay so we're gonna need a lot of fog coming off the river mm-hmm. thorolf's band of vikings is going to appear out of the fog weapons and shield in hand helmets are shining in the light of the rising sun uh-huh yeah. Is there going to be a Viking yelling about the smell of napalm in the morning? No, uh, they don't have napalm. Okay, yet, so we've got we've got fog and a rising sun. I suppose that works. Yeah. So cut back to the quiet farm. Inside, the travel family is sound asleep. The coals of last night's fire are just going out. And then we cut back to the warband. You're really They've committing to this bit, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> One of them steps forward and lets out a war cry. Everyone inside is startled awake. They're in shock. The men reach for their weapons and prepare for battle. Yeah, everyone except Thorgir. Uh-huh. Uh, I want to read what the saga says, because I think you'll want this in the movie, too. Thorgir fled out of the sleeping quarters, ran to the wooden fence surrounding the farm, grabbed <laughs> hold of one of the fence posts, and vaulted over it. Yep. Thorgil's boomer, standing nearby, swung his sword at Thorgir and chopped off the hand that was holding onto the post. <laughs> and Thorgir ran off into the woods. Way to go, Thorgir. Very manly. Well, I mean, he does survive, at least. Uh-huh. Uh, his brother Thord and more than 20 other men are killed in the raid. All the valuables are taken, and the farmhouse is burned down. See, I feel like Thorgir deserves a nickname now. Can we call him uh, Thorgir Fencehopper? I, well, before we give him a nickname, we should say that Thorgir is actually quite fortunate. I mean, he, he's going to be the only one of the four brothers to survive siding with Harold against Kveldal's family. Spoiler alert. But that lost hand is still a serious injury. It's an amputation. Absolutely. Uh, the loss of a hand, I mean, that's just, that's a risk in a world where swords and axes are used in combat. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's not even considering the dangers of a life of farming and building and hunting and fishing to survive. Mm. He could always get a replaced with a uh, gorilla's feet. Right, or we can do a right. We can turn this into the the story of what's that? Uh, the 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 legend of Hookhand, the uh... <laughs> yeah. No, no, remember Ow the Malathlead, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorar in the Black's wife. Sure. Yeah, she lost a hand breaking up a fight in the doorway of her home. Yep. And then told her husband not to make a big deal out of it. Yeah, no, she, I mean she was trying to keep Thorar in from more fighting, but that's, that's right. still remarkably badass. And there are plenty of other examples of missing or severed hands in the sagas, like uh, Kettle Athunason, who's a prominent settler in La Nama book. Uh, and there's a name we can track for them, which is the somewhat unimaginative and Einhandi, the one-handed. 
Hmm. Uh, which is how we get the title of the 14th century Fernanda saga, Ale Saga Einhanda, the saga of one hand ale. Yeah, that's a weird saga, that one. Yeah, it, it is. It, it rips off some narrative elements from the Odyssey and some from Germanic folklore. So, right. Uh, it's kind of, but it's kind of cool. So mm-hmm. listeners who are into comparative literature and folkloric studies might want to give that one a read, actually. Yeah, no, actually, yeah, it is. Um, but And we could get into a whole conversation about the possibilities for like prosthetic limbs and that sort of thing that would have been available in the Middle Ages. because Well, we could see all the, 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 the latest technology if you watch uh, Norseman with uh, Jalvorg, right? I he, think we're going to assume that Norseman is taking a few liberties, uh, but there, <laughs> there are legitimately – we're learning more and more. I mean, even just in the last few years, we've learned more yeah. about the potential – um, prosthetics that were available to somebody who had suffered an amputation in the Middle right. Ages. And what we're learning is that they had a pretty remarkable variety of possibilities open to them. Obviously, economic privilege gives you more opportunities. Well, speaking of economic privilege, I mean, Jarvarg, when he uh, he loses his hand, one of them gets replaced with a spoon. And yet, very soon after, you see him sitting at a table being fed soup by one of his men. Well, and he's got a perfectly good spoon hand right there. Right. But I mean, it's you You would assume that, uh, again, as you say, economic privilege. Yeah. But as I said, we can assume that the <laughs> the show Norseman is not to be relied upon as an account of 11th century events. I, I mean, um, I guess. Uh, but no, the, the point I'm making is uh, it's likely that if he received a nickname at all, Thorgir would probably receive the default nickname of Einhandi uh, in response mm. to his injury. Since he doesn't seem to have had a nickname before this moment. Well, I mean, that's a bit more than I was planning for in this conversation. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, that's I still what I bring to the fence. table. I still prefer Fence Hopper. All right. <laughs> now, I can't decide whether uh, Thorgir actually ruins my dramatic action scene or whether he enhances it. I, it depends. I mean, are you playing Benny Hill music behind his escape or heavy drums? I mean, if, if it's Benny <laughs> Hill, it's not dramatic. It still works, but it's not dramatic. <laughs> did you actually just... Is that a yakety sax lick you just did? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, if we're going to mention it, we got to put it in there. So so how are we supposed to feel about Thorolf at this point? He's, he's kind of a badass, but he is starting to cross the line between light and dark, isn't he? No, I think not from the perspective of an Icelandic author and audience. I don't think so. Um, he's been treated shabbily by Harold and by Harold's hangers-on. Oh, that's true. He's had his land taken from him, and he's responding by asserting his right to show the same disregard for the king's property as the king has shown for his. Now, Thorolf has his dark moments. His treatment of the Hildurudersons is pretty nasty, for example. Yeah. But this feels to me like the actions almost of a proto-Icelander. Yeah, and, and Thorolf is going to take that animosity... Uh, and he's going to mm. go a little bit further, isn't he? Yeah, I think he is. I mean, he's going to he's going to push it even farther. Although we have to say, raiding the travel family farm, killing twenty plus members of the travel clan, and burning the house down should be enough for any man. But apparently, it's not going to be enough for him. I guess not. So on his way back to Norway, they encounter another large cargo ship full of food supplies, and it belongs mm-hmm. to men loyal to King Harold as well. So Thorolf takes that one also, and now he's done. Because winter is coming. No, 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 no. no. Okay, <laughs> Not Game of Thrones I, music. I uh, <laughs> no music for Thorolf. You, should, uh, you, you Thorol- really got to watch your words more carefully. I Well, I mean, autumn. How's this? Autumn 
is giving way to winter. That works. Yeah, I wouldn't have played the music if you said it that. There way. you go. Uh, now it's time for Thor. When, when winter is coming is never going to be a safe phrase again, is it? <laughs> uh, it's time for Thorolf to head back to Sandus. And on the way, he makes a quick stop to see his father, Kveldolf. It's nice that he thinks of his family finally. You know, mm-hmm. I, although I almost wonder if he's just stopping by to show off the loot he managed to steal from King Harold. Yeah, I don't think Kveldolf is as impressed as Thorolf might like. I mean, in fact, he's he's just worried about his son. Uh, he says that things had turned out much as he expected them to between Thorolf and King Harold. Now you've taken the course that I had cautioned you against most of all by challenging King Harold. For all your prowess and accomplishments, you lack the good fortune to prove a match for Harold. I have an intuition that this will be our last meeting. Considering our ages, you should be destined to live longer, but I feel it will not turn out that way. Part 9. Three Steps Too Few. Now, at this point, the saga takes a step back to provide us with another perspective. Mm-hmm. Back in summer, while Thorolf was raiding, King Harold was staying at Oslofjord, or Vik in the saga. In autumn, he traveled up to Opland, and then north to Trondheim, where he spent the winter. Right now, Sigtrig Travel Quick and Halvard Travel Hard are with him when they learn about Thorolf's handling of their farm in Sweden. All throughout the winter, they remind King Harald about Thorolf's rough treatment to their family and how brazenly he robbed King Harald himself and raided in his country. What they want, obviously what they're after here, is permission to hunt Thorolf down and kill him. Yeah, but Harald isn't convinced that they can handle it. They persist all winter long, and then by spring, Harald warms to the idea. Well, he seems to. He grants them permission, and he says, I know that you will bring me back his head with many valuables. But some people claim that if you sail north, you'll need to use your oars as well on the way back. Yeah, in other words, you better be ready to run if you try to kill Thorolf on his home turf. Yeah, yeah. You never want to battle the champs at home. <laughs> but uh, but this is a matter of personal honor for the Travel Brothers. And they're willing to take risks if necessary. Yes, they are. And soon enough, they load their ships with 150 men and head out from Flather to pursue their vendetta. Now, as soon as they leave, King Harold prepares his own ships. Uh-huh. So the saga says that they rode out of Lather and across Skarnsund, then across Beitsjö to a spit of land at Eldueths. And sorry if I mispronounce any of those. He leaves his ships there and takes a long ship owned by the local farmers that are around that area. And he puts his men in that one. And while all of that might seem like too much detail, it's actually quite important. (laughs) If you're unfamiliar with Norwegian geography, as I am, then you'll benefit from looking at Emily Lethbridge's Icelandic saga map. Mm -hmm. And you can go to chapter 22 there, which describes the route, and you can see exactly what Harold's doing. Yeah, no, it's a a great resource for understanding some of these things that saga authors take for granted when it comes to geography. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, in this case, what you see is that Harold is tacking along an inland route north using the available waterways where he can. Uh, We learn later that he suspects Thorolf of having spies along the shorelines. Yeah, exactly. And he also suspects that Halvard and Sigtrik are going to be at a disadvantage if they go north along the seacoast. But that's all to Harold's advantage because the Travel Brothers will be attracting any attention away from this inland route that he's taking. Mm-hmm. No one will suspect that King Harold himself might come calling on Thorolf. Right now, and Harold is coming with an army. He's got well over 300 men in all. He's got five or six ships, apparently all local ships, which uh, 
is a smart move, right? It keeps anyone who would seize them from guessing who's on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, he leads the troop northward, rowing as hard as they can against a strong headwind. It's a tough journey, especially at the pace they're moving. But Harold wants to arrive at Sandnes before Thorolf hears about Halvard and Sigtrig coming up from the south. Yeah, and they arrive just after sunset. Thorolf's longship is moored just off the farm and its awnings are down. And that indicates that Thorolf is still at home, but preparing for a journey. And now Thorolf clearly suspects nothing, because there's no guard, and everyone inside is busy drinking a toast to their journey. If Thorolf's attack on the Travel Family Lodge wasn't cinematic enough for you, this one should do the trick. Harold and his men surround the house. A war cry is sounded, alerting Thorolf and his men, and they run for their weapons and prepare to fight. Right, now, one of the king's men calls into the house, asking all of the women, the children, the elderly, the slaves, and the bondsmen to come out. And of course, we know that when you make a call like that, there's going to be fire involved in this attack. Right? You're, <laughs> yes. giving, you're giving the innocent a, t- a chance to escape. Yep. Now, among the women who leave the house is Sigrid, Thorolf's wife. She asks if the sons of Kari of Burl were among the king's men. Yeah, and that's all their hump and Avon land. Right. Now, we haven't said it again this episode, but these are the uncles of Thorolf. That's right. They are there and they step forward uh, to greet Sigrid and ask what she wants. And Sigrid tells them to take her to the king, which they do. And she asks Harold if there's any hope of reconciliation. And Harold replies, If Thorolf is prepared to surrender and put himself at my power and mercy, then his life and limbs will be spared. But his men will be punished as they deserve. Now, Oliver Hump is forced to go into the house to explain those terms to Thorolf, who obviously... Oh, I feel so bad for him. Yeah, no, he obviously isn't going to abandon his men. Uh, he says he would rather step outside and let fate take, it, take its course in a fair fight. When Harold hears this, he says, I do not want to do battle with them and lose my men. And so he orders his men to set fire to the house instead. Yeah, that's not good. Uh, no. Now, this is dry timber. It's uh, recently tarred, right? The Thorolf is constantly building bigger houses to house all those men. Uh, now, it catches quickly, and soon the whole house is in flames. And I'll just read this part, part from the saga. Thorolf ordered his men to break down the wall between the main room of the house and the entrance, which was easily done. When they had removed the beam from it, as many of them as could get a grip took hold of it and drove the end against one corner of the room so hard that the joints split on the outside and the walls came apart, giving them an easy way out. Thorolf rushes out first, followed by Thorgild's boomer and the rest, and they clash with King Harold's men. And for a time, the fire protects their back, but it eventually spreads, closing in on several of Thorolf's men, killing them. Right. Now, meanwhile, Thorolf spots the standard of King Harold. Knowing that his enemy will be right near that standard, he presses forward, hewing enemies on both sides as he goes. At this point, Thorgild's boomer falls in battle. Right, but not because of Thorolf. He's by Thorolf's side. Uh, now, Thorolf reaches the king, and he finds him surrounded by a wall of shields. He thrusts his sword through the standard bearer, but realizes he won't be able to get any closer to King Harold. He looks down and says, I took three steps too few here. And then he's attacked from all sides with swords and spears. At the last moment, the shield wall parts, and King Harold steps out to deliver the final blow himself. And Thorolf falls there at his feet. Harold calls out for his men to pull back, and with Thorolf dead, there's to be no more killing. The fight stops, and the men return to their ships. 
Mm-hmm. Now, but before he leaves, Harold calls to Olver Hump and tells him to prepare Thorol for a proper burial and to tend to the wounded. Yeah, and he also says, there will be no plundering here because all of this wealth belongs to me, which is a nice touch. Oh, what a bastard. <laughs> He's the worst. <laughs> uh, I'm so sure Olver is really appreciating all this. Uh-huh, yeah. It's a horrible position to be in, but... He has no choice, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, once you've uh, once you hit your wagon to Harold Star, this is what happens. Yep. Uh, so Harold returns to the ship. He inspects his men's wounds and notices one man bandaging a, a scratch, a small wound. Harold looks at it and says, Thorolf couldn't have dealt that wound, for his weapons bit in a completely different way. I do not think many men will be bandaging the wounds he delivered. Men like Thorolf leave a great loss behind them. Which is a fitting eulogy from the king, I guess. Yeah. I mean, at least there was a mutual respect between the two men. It's unfortunate they couldn't get along, but uh, I guess in the end, they're just uh, they're too similar. Both talented and ambitious, both stubborn, both dangerous, but still a tragic ending for Thorolf. Yeah, tragic but epic. Uh, mm-hmm. Thorolf is really given a place of honor here. Uh, no one else in any saga gets closer to taking Harold Fairhair down. Right. I agree. I mean, his problem is he flew too close to the sun and tried to be the sun at the same time. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's the way the Icarus tumbles. Uh, he ultimately <laughs> died to prove his right to break from Harold when Harold stopped treating him with a friendly respect due to an important and independent man. Mm-hmm. Right? Harold instead began treating him like an asset of the king. Yeah. Now, Thorolf seemed to have pretensions to kingship himself. I admit that. But from an Icelandic perspective, he dies as a rebel in the cause of independence. And that's almost certainly a death to celebrate. I agree. Yeah. So in the morning, King Harold and his crew sail away. And along the way, they run into a lot of rowboats that are coming quickly towards Thorolf's farm. And they recognize these as the spies that Thorolf had placed along the shore to warn him if anyone's coming. Right. So Harold's not a fool, right? He was correct in his suspicion. Yeah. Uh, now, as Harold had suspected, those men had spotted Halvard and Sigtrig coming up the coast. They'd been delayed by those strong headwinds we mentioned and had waited them out in nearby harbors. So the Travel Brothers are actually still on their way up to Sandnes to get their revenge on Thorolf. Uh, yeah, no, and and the brothers are horribly disappointed when they finally hear the news that Harold got there first. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they're embarrassed as well because really kind of Harold took advantage of them. Absolutely. Um, they were they were decoys. Right. Exactly. So there's a brief coda to this section concerning Olvir Hump and his brother Avon Lamb that we should cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, they actually stayed behind at Sandus to help Sigrid put the farm back in order and nurse the injured back to health. Remember, their instructions were just to bury Thorolf. That's right. Uh, and once they've done getting things back in order, they return to Trondheim and rejoin Harold's court. Yeah, except they keep a low profile, almost almost as if they're ashamed to be there. Almost? I mean, they, <laughs> they are ashamed. They ought to be ashamed to be there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, before long, they approach the king, and Olver explains that he and Avond no longer feel comfortable at sharing the hall and drinking with the assailants of their kinsman Thorolf, right? This is there their nephew. Go. They would like to leave and return to their farms, if Harold will allow it. See, it's a reasonable request, and Harold certainly understands where they're coming from. And like a good king, he sends them back to their seats, and then he waits until the next day. Well, he to rather curtly an sends them back to their seats. Yes. 
So he says, uh, the next day, mind you, you have been here with me for some while and conducted yourselves in civilized fashion. You have served me well and I have thought well of you in all ways. Now I want you, Avent, to go north to Halogaland and marry Secret, Thorolf's widow. Ugh. I will give you all the wealth that belonged to Thorolf, and you will have my friendship too, if you know how to look after such things. <laughs> I can just imagine Avent rolling his eyes and thinking, oh, here we go again. Exactly, yeah. And, and what about poor Secret, right? Also no she doubt would, rolling her eyes and thinking, here we go again. She was married to Bard <clears throat> earlier. He died in the king's service. Then she was given to Thorolf. The king killed him. And now the king has a mm-hmm. new husband for her. I mean, she's never consulted even once. Right. She's just a body attached to the property. Absolutely right. Uh, and sadly, that's a reality for many uh, aristocratic women in the Middle Ages, right? Not just in Scandinavia. Yeah. And when Avond arrives up in Sanness, we're told that he does explain the situation to Sigrid and that Harold ordered the match. So Sigrid, we're told, felt like she had no choice but to accept the king's will. Right. And I think, you know, the fact that she feels like she had no choice is accurate, right? She doesn't mm-hmm. really have a choice here any more than Avid really does. Right. Uh, he can't he can't turn down this quote unquote generous offer from Harold, and she can't turn down this generous offer of a new husband. Right, but it does kind of imply that she has a choice. She doesn't though. She could say no, but there's repercussions if she No, she can't. She could. She, I mean, yes, she can, but in the same way that Thorolf, you know, could choose not to put his hand in a blender the way that he did. <laughs> But he did it. <laughs> but still, it's a choice. Uh, I mean, not that this is a happy ending by any stretch. Uh, but we can say that at least she goes on to live a quiet life with Avon Lamb. <laughs> uh, That's true. And if you like nicknames, I mean, their offspring has some great ones. Uh, we get a, a, a fairly extensive uh, troll through their descendants. They have a son called Finn the Squinter, for example. Ah, oh, yes. So, yeah, I don't think that nickname needs an explanation. Uh, there are not any glasses or contacts uh, up in Norway just yet at this point. Uh, and I don't think rudimentary glasses actually enter Europe until the 13th century. So I imagine there are a lot of squinters running around. I, I think it's a little bit earlier than that, actually. Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, bad eyesight or no, Finn is able to get himself a bride and produce an heir. And his son is called Avon the Plagiarist. <laughs> there you go. Now, I remember reading this the first time and uh-huh. pausing for a long while over that nickname. I sincerely hope you've got a story for us about that one. Well, I don't know how What's satisfying this? it is, but, uh, you know, we'll we'll get to it when we get to nicknames the end of the saga. Uh, okay. I will add, however, that Avon Lamb also has a daughter, Girlog, who marries none other than Sigvat the Red. And do you uh, remember who he is? Do I remember who Sigvat the Red is? So you don't, then. No, no, that was just a dramatic pause. You should have waited. Oh, I'm sorry. Of, of course I remember who Siegfried is. There you is. go. He's the father of Mord Gigya, Mord Fiddle, mm-hmm. who we met in Njall Saga, and his brother Siegfuss, who produced all those troublesome Siegfussens. That's right. See, you remember things. Sometimes, uh, yeah. And I'm sure you also recall that he's the great-grandfather of Gunnar Hamundersen through Siegfuss's daughter, Ranvig. Of course. Mm, Siegfried the Red's a big deal. But in all honesty, I only remember because I was recently trying to work out the genealogy for myself <laughs> because I wanted to know if Gerlog was the mother of Morthfiddle and Siegfuss. And how'd you do with that? Did you figure it out? No. No. <laughs> the, the only reference I found to Gerlog was in this chapter of Ale Saga. Um, so I can't really say uh, that she's their mother. But in uh-huh. my search, 
I was also reminded that Seacott the Red is sometimes Mord Phil's grandfather. Uh, At least yeah. that's how Floamana Saga reports it. Yeah, but who wants to trust Floamana Saga? Well, not me. Uh, but, uh, you know, we should stop reviewing genealogies. I'm sure our listeners would appreciate it if we got back oh, to this story. Sorry, folks. <laughs> we get Remember lost Ale in saga? the names. We, we love these genealogies. We just can't resist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, okay, so where were we? I know that Thorolf is dead and mm-hmm. Avon Lamb has married his widow, Secret. They had two children, Finn Squinter, the father of Aving the Plagiarist, and a daughter. No, 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 stop this. You're doing it again. Uh, <laughs> go, go back. genealogies. Go back. We've got Avon's future history down. Um, and now we need to know what happened to Olvir Hump. Right. Okay. So this will be a bit faster because nothing happens to Olvir. Right. Harold won't let him leave because he's a good poet. And it sucks for Olvir. Uh, it really Especially does. when you consider that he, this is a guy who originally joined the court to get over a broken heart and then to right. watch your brother sent off to marry the Queen of the North, in essence. Exactly. Uh, it's, I mean, but I guess, you know, it's good to be wanted. <laughs> Yeah, even if it's by the guy that killed your kinsman. Sure. Yeah. And with that, we bring the story of Thorolf Kveldelsen to a close. His candle burned brightly, but... <laughs> but what? His candle burned out long before? <laughs> his legend ever did. There you go. Um, wow. <laughs> At least we didn't sing it. Um, it's not too late. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> it's too late. Uh, now don't go thinking this is the end of the episode by any means. Oh, no, no, no. Kveldolf and Grimm are still out there. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And uh, hold on. Hmm? Shh, 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 shh. Do you hear that? I think I hear those waves you mentioned earlier. Oh, are those Icelandic waves? Part 10. Skallagrim is on the move. Now, you know, I can't tell if that's a reference to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or Thundercats. Okay, well, let me give you a hint. I'd never reference Thundercats, <laughs> so that should clear things up. You know what? If I were doing this one, I would have done it like this. Scott the Grim is on the move. Scott the Grim is loose. And that's why I do the section headings. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so chapter 22 of Ale Saga opens with the story of Kettle Hang, uh, but not the one we met back in our first episode. That's obviously uh, Kettle Hang Halbjörnsen. Obviously. And this is Kettle Hang Thorkelsen. Sure, obviously, that's going to be the case. Yes, yes. <laughs> Kettle was part of the force. We should be clear. Wait, 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 we should be clear. Oh. This Kettle Hang is the grandson of the first Kettle Hang. Oh, well, duh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought everyone knew that. <laughs> so Kettle was part of the force that gathered to support Thorolf when the Travel Brothers were spotted coming north. Mm-hmm. When Kettle and his troop of 60 men heard that Thorolf was already dead, they turned around. Right, but not to go home, right? He doesn't go home. No, 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 he doesn't. Instead, he takes his ship to Thorolf's old property, a Torger. Where the Hilleridersons live. Remember those guys? That's right. And I don't imagine he's coming by to borrow a cup of sugar. <laughs> Because uh, I don't think they even use sugar in medieval Norway at that point. <laughs> uh, Kenelhang doesn't waste much time. He storms the farm, kills the Hilderidersons, and takes everything that isn't nailed down. Yeah, it goes so quickly. I really thought that the Hilderidersons deserved a little more from the author. 
I mean, uh, yeah. you know, th- this this passage is shorter than our nugget from last time where we were trying to say their name. <laughs> Speak their names. Yes. They play a central role in Thorolf's downfall, and yet they basically disappear from the narrative entirely after they move to Torgar. And now they're dead within just a couple of lines of text. I mean, even the saga author finds them unworthy. I mean, look, there's a lot to do in this saga. Yes, yeah. You can't you can't linger over every dead antagonist. Well, we, we do. Uh, well, Kettle doesn't hang around very long. See, I, I hope that's just a coincidence and not a play on his nickname, please. Oh, you make it what you want. <laughs> uh, now, Kettle runs home and loads his family and goods onto his two largest cargo ships. He knows there's going to be consequences to his uh, his plans. Yeah. As soon as the wind is favorable, he puts out to sea. Yeah, and with that, we're about to be introduced to Iceland. Uh We're told that a few years earlier, Ingolf had gone to settle Iceland and that a lot of people were talking about the quality of the land there. And this is Ingolf Arnason, the settler of Reykjavik, and his sworn Mm -hmm. brother, Hjörleif Hrodmundarsson. Now, we'll spare you the lengthy details about where and how they settled. Yeah, and the even lengthier genealogy that follows. Right. Now, we'll just leave him as an early settler who claimed the territory between the Thorsa and Markafjord rivers. Now that that's taken care of, we can check in with Kveldolf and Grimm, which is really more right. important. Now, yeah, now since we last saw them, Grimm has gotten married. Oh, good for him. Uh, and we've gotten a more complete introduction to his character. His wife is Bera, the only child of a powerful and wealthy man Called Ingvar. Mm. And they were married the winter after Thorolf last visited. Now, at that time, we're told Grimm was 25 years old, but already bald. So he was nicknamed Skatlagrim, or Bald Grimm. Yeah, and it's it's been so hard to just call him Grimm all this time. <laughs> Can we finally call him by his proper saga name? I mean, I think we're obligated to now. Mm. Uh, we're also told that Skatlagrim took after his father in terms of physique and strength, <laughs> as well as complexion. And character. So he's basically an ugly, bald, grumpy person. Yeah, basically, yes. Okay, wow. So Bera Ingvar's daughter uh, really got lucky with this one. I bet she was so thrilled when he <laughs> walked through that door. Oh, but by this point in the saga, Kvelov is quite old and infirm. So Scott Grimm is offering at least uh, the ownership of a farm. Yeah, but she's um, the sole daughter of, of Ingvar. She's got way I, more property. She's got a farm. I know. Come on. I know. But he's, he's, he's a charming man. I bet he walks through the door and he's like... Um, Can I have your daughter? <laughs> it's a, no, no. Uh, now, speaking speaking as a uh, grumpy, balding, perhaps not conventionally handsome fellow myself. And nowhere near 25. I, well, I was once. <laughs> and I wasn't any better looking no, than You had more hair, though. <laughs> Fair point. Uh, now, when, uh, when th- news of Thorolf's death arrives, Kveldolf is overcome by grief. And takes to his bed. Scott Grimm tries to bring his father around by telling him how unbecoming it is for a man like him to lay around in bed like that. Mm. Real nice, Scott Grimm. Yeah, it's for a lot of a uh, lot, lot of lot of sympathy. Yeah, it there. really gives you a sense of his character. Instead of laying around, he urges vengeance. Right, almost Beowulfian. Absolutely. Uh, now Kveldolf responds in verse, saying. The spinner of fate is grim to me. I hear that Thorolf has met his end on a northern isle 
too early, the Thunderer chose the Swinger of Swords. The hag of old age who once wrestled with Thor has left me unprepared to join the Valkyrie's Clash of Steel. Urge as my spirit may, my revenge will not be swift. What a great poem. And it's our first of the saga. How exciting, John. Yeah, I, I particularly like that reference to Thor wrestling old age from the tale of uh, Utgard Loki. Yeah. But it's a terribly sad poem. It's a father's lament yeah. for his son, but also for his lost strength. Fate mm-hmm. has decreed that he'd be too old to avenge Thorolf and too old to do battle and win a place in Valhalla. Right. And remember, uh, when we get into the life story of Ael yeah. Scotland Grimson, this uh, this quality of his grandfather, Absolutely. right? That uh, that he he does have this moment of being kind of overcome by the emotional impact of personal mm-hmm. loss, and it's usually expressed uh, now, in sure. poetry, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, after this moment, uh, Kveldolf and Scott Lagrim are visited by Olver Hump, uh, who of course is coming as an emissary of the king. Yeah. Right? He has a message from the king. That's right. Olver doesn't stop advocating for Kveldolf now that Thorolf is gone. In fact, he's been begging the king to offer Kveldolf some compensation for Thorolf as a sign of respect. Now, King Harold is apparently open to the idea, uh, if and only if, Kveldolf and Skotlagrim were to come and see him personally. Yeah, and that's going to be difficult given Kveldolf's current condition. I mean, yes, uh, that's not the only reason why it's a problem, <laughs> but that's what Kveldolf says to Olvir. And when Olvir asks Skotlagrim, he says... Well, the king will not be much impressed by my eloquence, and I do not think I would spend much time asking him for recompense. But Olvir assures him that he'll do all the talking on their behalf if only one of them would come to see the king. And he's so insistent that Scott Grimm eventually agrees to go, but only on his own time. Of course. Uh, now, when he's ready, Scott Grimm assembles a crew of 11 men, including distinguished characters like Thorbjorn the Hunchback, Thord Hobbler, Thorer the Giant, and Thorger Earthlong. <laughs> now, all these men are outstandingly powerful, and many are shapeshifters. Now, quite a crew. And when they finally arrive at King Harold's court, a messenger approaches the king and says, A party of twelve men has turned up. If men is the right word, they're more like giants than human beings. <laughs> Oh, my. <laughs> and then presumably coughs delicately into a perfumed handkerchief. I believe so, yes. Uh, <laughs> now, Olver hears this and knows exactly who must have arrived. He hops up and runs outside to greet them. And uh, because they can't bring their weapons inside, Scott Legrim divides the party in half, leaves six armed men outside by the door, and he then follows Olver into the hall with his other five men to be presented to King mm-hmm. Harold. Yeah, what a fantastic moment. I've been waiting for this. Mm-hmm. The image of Scott Legrim, a craggy-faced, huge, foul man standing there in front of the resplendent King Harold at the center of Norwegian <laughs> civilization. Uh, it's a great image. Uh, and Olver, the refined court poet, uh, or the, you know, sort of housebroken dog <laughs> from the perspective of the rest of his family. Know, he's trying hard. Uh, does his best to present this monster of a man to the king. 
uh, eloquently arguing on Scotlandgrim's behalf for some sort of compensation for his brother Thorolf. Yeah, Harold is intrigued by the sight of Scotlandgrim, but he's also mindful of the fact that neither Kveldolf nor Scotlandgrim have ever sworn allegiance to him, which is a problem. Mm-hmm. So he's not about to offer a hefty compensation to a silent enemy without getting some assurance of future loyalty. So he gives Scotlandgrim a choice. I want you to become one of my men and enter my service, he says. I may be pleased enough with your service to give you compensation for your brother Thorolf, or no less honor than I showed him. But you should be sure to act more carefully than he did, if I make you a man of his stature. God, don't you, don't you just want to stab him right now? He's terrible. Uh, He's the worst. Now, Scott Legrim replies, Everyone knows that Thorolf was much more able than I am in all respects. But he lacked the good fortune to serve you properly. That's a good start, Grim. I will not take that course. What? I will not serve you, because I know I lack the good fortune to serve you the way I would like (gasps) and that you deserve. (laughs) I imagine I would lack many of Thorolf's qualities. Now, at this, King Harold's face understandably turns red. Olver immediately ushers Scott Legrim and his men out of the hall, <laughs> telling them to get away as fast as they can to avoid coming into contact with Harold again at any cost. Yeah, no, that's good advice. I mean, Scott Legrim and his men have to flee. Although, of course, they wouldn't put it that way. Uh, they sail across the lake and away from danger. Well, Olver's men start hacking holes into all the other boats on the <laughs> it's shore. the equivalent of, uh, you know, when you run out of the bar and push over the row of the biker gang's motorcycles just before you drive <laughs> off in a hurry. I like the way you phrase that, as if it's some obvious thing that you and I have both personally experienced doing. I think it's really more from movies, <laughs> not from uh, personal experience. Sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so back inside the hall, King Harold is raging. I can see that that huge bald man is as vicious as a wolf, and he will do harm to men over whose loss I would grieve if he gets hold of them. That bald character cannot be expected to spare any of you if he has the chance. So go, go after him and kill him. (laughs) Yet all the men rush out to give chase. And then they come back a few minutes later to explain that all their ships have holes in them. (laughs) Oh, classic. You know, I didn't like Olvir at first, but he's got a special place in my heart now. Well, he's 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 a good scuttler. How's that? Part 11, The Undiscovered Country. So with a good head start, Scott Legrim is able to get home without any trouble. But he knows the king's men will be hot on his tail. Yeah, he tells Kveldolf about the exchange, and you could just feel the pride emanating <laughs> off the page in this section. He's extremely pleased at how his son handled the king. Uh-huh. Yeah, but they're both aware of the precarious situation they're now in, and they have to move fast. Mm-hmm. After a short deliberation, they decide to follow their friends who had recently fled to this little place in the Atlantic Ocean they have found called Iceland. Hmm. And now at this point, we're suddenly introduced for no reason to a new character, a man named Thorir Hrodson. And he really does seem to come out of nowhere, but he'll be important uh, throughout the rest of the saga. Right. So Thorir is Kveldolf's foster son, and he's roughly the same age as Scott the Grim. So around 26 at this point, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're told he's one of the king's landholders at this point, but that he and Scott the Grim were still very close. And then the narrative drops the point altogether. But remember, right. he's there. 
Right. Just as quickly as we introduce to Thor, he's gone, but don't forget him. So by early spring, Kveldolf and Scott the Grim have prepared their ships. They've got several fine ships, two large cargo ships as well, each of them with 30 men. Um, there are also women and children on board. They take everything they can fit on those ships and they head out for the nearby Soland Islands where they can hide in the many bays and coves. Yeah, and you can see why this might make a great hiding spot for them if you look at that Icelandic saga map we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, just go to chapter 23 and scroll down to the bottom. Click on the hyperlink to Solundir and it'll show you a modern satellite image of the island. Yeah, I got to use that site more. Everyone does. It's very cool. <laughs> Uh, no, they're just, not just hiding in Solandir, of course. They're, they're waiting for good weather to make the voyage across the ocean to Iceland. And as they're waiting, a very sharp-eyed Scott Legrim spots a familiar boat on the horizon. It's this very cargo ship the Travel Brothers seized from Thorgill's boomer. Yeah, Sigtrick and Halvard were on a mission for King Harold, fetching the young sons of Guthorm, King Harold's maternal uncle. Like many maternal uncles in Germanic culture, Guthorm fostered his sister's son, which creates a special bond between himself and young Harold. Right. And this is one of those sort of moments where we can see that this is a very early saga, mm-hmm. right? Because in later sagas, as we know, Harold is fostered by Dofri, That's the right. giant king from under the mountain. Right. Uh, but this, a very early saga, has a much more kind of prosaic uh, fostering relationship with his mother's brother. Mm-hmm. Guthorm is going to go on to play a significant role as one of Harold's generals. He leads his armies into the most important battles during the conquest of Norway. Now, if we ever get to the Heimskringla, we're going to see a lot more of this guy during the saga of King Harold Fairhair. Yeah, and he's not terribly important to this story, except for the fact that he had recently died, and Harold wanted to fulfill <laughs> his obligation as foster son by raising Guthorm's two sons, Sigurd and Ragnar. Mm-hmm. Now, thus, he dispatched the Travel Brothers to fetch them, and they're now on their way back from that mission when Scott Grimm spots them in Thorolf's ship. Right. Now, Scott Grimm prepares two ships, each with 20 men. By this time, it seems like Kveldulf is in much better spirits because he commands one of the ships that sets out from Solander to intercept Sigtrig and Halvard. Good for him. I'm glad he's feeling better. Well, he's staying active in his old age. Uh, now, they row out to search for the ship, and they find it moored along the edge of the mainland. They see that the awning is covering the ship, suggesting the crew is sleeping. Now, one wakeful watchman spots the two ships approaching at speed and calls out a warning, waking everyone and giving them a bit of time at least to prepare for the attack. Yeah. Kveldolf aims for the jetty and leaps onto the gangway, while Scott Legrim mm-hmm. aimed his ship for the prow. Kveldolf boards the ship carrying a gigantic double-bladed axe. Sure. And after shouting orders to his men to cut the awnings from the pegs, Kveldolf goes into a frenzy like a wild animal. Some of his men also do the same, as does Scott the Grim when he boards. I can only assume this is the berserker rage that we've heard so much about, and they rush Uh around the boat, killing everyone they encounter in their frenzy. Yeah, I have a few thoughts on that, but I'll wait until you finish up. Okay, so excellent. So uh, Kveldolf thrashes about the boat, and he doesn't stop killing until the part that he's on is completely cleared. Uh, He then turns back to the afterguard and finds Halvard. Uh, Kveldolf swings his axe so hard that it goes through Halvard's helmet, and into his head, up to the shaft. Yeah, see, I don't think uh, Halvard's going to recover from that one. Ah, a couple of ibuprofen, he'll be fine. <laughs> uh, so, Kvodolf then pulls the axe back with so much force that he lifts Halvard up by the head and slings him over the side of the boat. Oh, see, there's our first legitimate best bloodshed candidate. <laughs> Saga's warming meanwhile, up. Right, and meanwhile, Scott Legrim is clearing the prow of the ship, and along the way, he kills Sigtrig Travelquick. 
And that essentially puts an end to the travel family line, doesn't it? Everyone else was killed by Thorolf, right? No, no. Uh, uh, Thorger, remember, oh, uh, got yes. away. Minus one hand, of course. That's right. All right. So one guy survives. Now, at this point, there's just cleanup duty to take care of. Scott Legrim gets back onto his ship and rows over to kill any survivors left in the water. What a grim duty that is. Um, <laughs> the body count, though, continues to grow. We're told that 50 of Halvard's men were killed. Um, plus, we've got Halvard and Sigtrik, so that's 52. Uh, 54, actually. Remember those two young boys, the sons of Guthorm? It turns out they jumped overboard during the fight and died. 54. I mean, it's yeah. it's too bad, but Scott Grimm <laughs> and Kveldolf have managed to get a pretty impressive revenge on Sigtrick and Halvard. Yeah, now, just to make sure that somebody could tell the tale, Scott Grimm releases a couple of men, but only if they promise to tell King Harald what happened and to share this verse with him. The warrior's revenge is repaid to the king. Wolf and eagle stalk over the king's sons. Halvard's corpse flew in pieces into the sea. The gray eagle tears at travel quick's wounds. Nicely done, Scott the Grim. And with their vengeance more or less complete, they take the cargo ship that had belonged to Thorolf back with them, load it up, and head out for Iceland with a small flotilla carrying all their valuables, family, friends, uh-huh. servants, and slaves. Right. Now, at this point, this is what I was hinting at earlier. Uh, at this point, Kveldolf collapses, and the saga pauses to explain. It is said that people who could take on the character of animals or went berserk became so strong in this state that no one was a match for them, but also that just after it wore off, they were left weaker than usual. Kveldolf was the same, so that when his frenzy wore off, he felt exhausted by the effort he had made, and was rendered completely powerless, and had to lie down and rest. Yes. Now, despite his exhaustion, he's still well enough to command the ship they took from Sigtrick and Halvert. The passage from Norway goes quietly at first, but the closer they get to Iceland the worse Kveldolf's condition gets. Yeah, he's fading fast, and he soon realizes that he won't make it to Iceland. Uh, With his men gathered around, he says, If it happens, as I think it probably will, that I die, make a coffin for me and put me overboard. Give my greetings to my son Grimm when you see him, and tell him, too, that if he reaches Iceland, and unlikely as it seems, I am there already to make himself a home as close as possible to the place where I have come ashore. These guys are getting closer and closer to Tom Waits the more I read them. (laughs) Uh, Now, shortly after that little speech, Kveldolf dies. And just as he requested, his men put him in a coffin and heave it overboard. Now, at that point, I think... They had a coffin on board? (laughs) Well, it's just a bunch of wood. They probably have wood on board. Right, they had a box. Yeah. Now, at that point, Grim the Halogalander, one of Kveldolf's closest friend who appears out of nowhere, he takes charge of the ship. Not long after that, the ships arrive in Iceland. They follow the coast along the southern shore toward the west, where they had heard Ingolf Arneson had settled. They, settle, they sail around Reckiness and sail into the wide fjord. Just then the weather turns, which it does in Iceland, and the ships get separated in the heavy rain and fog. Yeah, Grim the Halogalander sailed into Borgafjordr, 
and anchor the ship to wait out the storm. Right now, now we're getting into some familiar territory, very, or at least familiar for the people who know the saga. Yeah, very familiar territory. Uh, when the weather settles, Grim the Hologalander drives his ship into the estuary of the river Gufwa, uh, which, again, you can see on the saga map if you want to. Um, they go up as far as they can, unload their cargo, and without Scott the Grim, they spend their first winter there. You know, later, as they're exploring the coastline looking for Kvelov's coffin, they find it uh, in a small bay not too far down the fjord. They carry the coffin out onto the headland and pile rocks over it. And uh, just north of this spot, Scott Legrim will establish a settlement and raises two sons, Ale and Thorolf. See, but that that is a story for our next episode. Mm-hmm. We'll pause our coverage of Ale Saga right here for now. But before we go, there's still a few loose ends to tie up. We promised you some nicknames, and we've got a few questions to address from our listener mailbag. So let's start with the nicknames. What have you got for us, John? Well, I, rather than go into a full description of all the nicknames and explanation of them, which we're obviously saving for the end of the saga, um, I want to talk about just a couple of them. Yeah. Uh, so since we've been focusing on them this episode, let me talk about uh, Halvard, uh, the hard or hardy traveler, and Sigtrig, the swift traveler. Uh, their names in Icelandic, Halvard Harfjari and Sigtrig Snarfari. So the two brothers are named as a pair, which is kind of obvious uh, from the similarity of their names, but also from the fact that both alliterate in Old Norse as well as in English translations, uh, as long as you translate as Swift Traveler. The names come from Halvard and Sigtrig's roles as messengers for King Harald Fairhair, that role we talked about of them sort of darting all over the north, enforcing his will on people who Harald regarded himself as having domination over. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, as you said, it made them unpopular, uh, but their nicknames suggest uh, a kind of respect for the speed and the harshness of their voyages. Right. Uh, and there are a lot of other – I mean there's a lot of other nicknames in this part of the saga. This is actually a rich part of the saga for names. Oh, definitely. Uh, we're introduced to Halvard and Sigtrig, but also, as you mentioned, Finn the Squinter, even the Plagiarist. Thorbjorn Hunchback, Thord Hobbler, Thorger Earthstrong, Thorer the Giant, Vetterlithi the Poet. Uh, instantly, Andy, does the name Vetterlithi the Poet ring a bell? No, but I bet it will once you tell me. Um, he's mentioned in conversion stories oh. uh, in the sagas. Uh, he appears in Njal Saga and elsewhere. He's a poet famous for speaking particularly vicious mocking verses against the Christian missionaries led by Thongbrand. Uh-huh. So this is where several generations, this is a guy who's the great-grandson of uh, Avon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's now, at about the year 1000 in Iceland, he's one of the people sneering at the Christian missionaries. And because of that, Thongbrand ambushed and killed him. I remember Thongbrand's violent ways. So, <laughs> the poet, is actually the reason that uh, Thongbrand ends up uh, banished from Iceland for uh, oh. for his violence against the Icelanders. That's a nice connection there. It's a it's a random bit of knowledge, but there you go. Yeah. Uh, so this is also obviously the section of the saga where Grim Kveldolfsson gets his nickname Scotla Grim. Uh, now we've said a couple of times that it's as as you suggested with. Uh, Harold's sort of sneering anger at oh, yeah. that bald man. He kept bringing it up, didn't he? Uh, he oh my god! It just, <laughs> you could tell. You could just see a man named Fairhair, right? 
sort of sort of sort of running a hand through his thick locks yeah. as he says, "Go get that that bald scumbag." He was bald, and did you notice? Uh, he had and no did hair. See, did you see? Did you see my hair? My hair is beautiful, isn't it? Enjoy my hair. Admire my hair. Go get that bald man. Uh, now, this name does come from Scott Ligram's bald head. And you do see it occasionally translated as Skullgrim, mm-hmm. occasionally, uh, which presumably suggests a man who's bald as a skull. Uh, but the name is actually derived from the or We think it's derived from the word, word Kotler, uh, the crown of the head. So his name is Baldgrim or Crown Grim, or has as has been suggested, Baldy Grim. Baldy Grim, uh, which you actually do see translated occasionally. Interesting. Uh, but yeah, most of those other nicknames I'm going to save for uh, when we get to the end of the saga. But I think we'd have a little taste. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's good to give a little taste now and then because uh, if you don't do it here, then you're going to have well, too, way too many at the end. Right. By the time we get to the end of the saga, a name like uh, Hall of Art Travel Hard is just not even going to exactly. come up. Exactly. And, and Scott Legrim, as, as nice as exactly. it is, is a little too simple. But, so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll throw in a few here and there. All right. So uh, if you're done with that, are you uh, ready to tackle a few questions before we sail off into the sunset? I mean, sure, we can try. Okay. Our first one comes from Patrick Temporelli on Twitter, who asks, why would this author have a neutral or perhaps favorable view of Berserk-like behavior? Would most other saga authors use Berserks as plot devices or villainous set pieces? We saw Kveldolf and his crew slip into the Berserker rage in this episode. So uh, how do you think we're supposed to read that, John? I mean, uh, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this too, but uh, I think it's clear that this author does have or is interested in uh, creating a uh, a more sympathetic or at least uh, humanized idea of what the berserkers are. Mm-hmm. We've seen berserks in a number of our stories now. Uh, um, the one that always sticks out to me is the uh, the Swedish brothers uh, Lekir and Holly, uh, who appear in uh, Erbage Saga. But they're uh, brought to Iceland by Vermin the Slender, uh, and then he gives them to his brother Killerstur. That's right. Yes, right? they're treated as a kind of uh, trick animal. Right? Mm-hmm. They're 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 owned. They're they're given as a gift from one man to another. Uh, they are uh, vicious, and right? they're 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 and they're treated as kind of dangerous, troublesome people. Uh, we're not really encouraged to feel sympathy for them, but if you read their story from their perspective. They are little better than slaves, uh, and they're treated that way. And when they, uh, the the reason that they eventually have to be killed is that Lechnir falls in love with the daughter of Killerstur and wants to marry her. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that that idea that a berserk would dare to love a woman uh, becomes a reason that justifies their their killing. Uh, I think in general, in the sagas, we're invited to think of berserks as dangerous, sort of subhumans. Right. Well, um, this reminds. Yeah. But a slightly more sympathetic view comes from uh, was it Vatnsdal saga? Yes. Um, we had a, a berserk who, and, and you'll remember the name that I can't remember, but uh, Thor Goatleg. Thor Goatleg. That's right. Yeah. Yep. But he he uh, he's a berserker, but he feels genuinely bad about being a berserker. It's a curse that he has to suffer through. Right. Now, and that's and that's sympathetic to the individual, but yeah. not to the idea of being a berserker. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's a shameful, embarrassing trait that he wishes he could rid himself. That's of. right. 
But I, I think, uh, as you said, this author is interested in, uh, I don't think you said mm-hmm. otherness, but I'm going to use that, that word here. Um, yep. You know, a lot of Ailes family, they're, they're different in, right. in one way or another. And right. in this case, uh, we, we, you know, we see them in action. It's the unleashing of that violent potential mm-hmm. that has been hinted at this whole section. Um, well, yeah, and ahead. they're atypical figures, right? But yeah. also, uh, as we see when Scott Legrim goes to see uh, Harold, he brings with him a crew of these kind of non-normate yeah. bodies, right? We have men named the Giant, the Hunchback, uh, many of them being shapeshifters as well as berserks, uh, that we see a lot of sympathy for that non-normate body and that non-normate person in this saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been demonstrated pretty effectively that uh, the idea of the berserk is a literary construction, right? That that berserks weren't running around being called berserks in the 9th century or 10th century, that this is something that appears in the sagas and is largely being constructed there. And it's interesting to note that in this very early saga, because we have to think about most of the things that we're talking about as being unsympathetic to the sagas, to the uh, berserks, come later in the saga tradition. Right. This is a very early saga, and it's expressing a very nuanced idea of what it means both to be a berserk and to live in a society in which berserks kind of feature in the landscape. Mm-hmm. Excellent. All right. So um, we have one more question I want to share with you. Uh, Doug Nordwall wants to know more about the potential Sami half-troll connection. Is oh. there any credence to the link? Uh, does it mm-hmm. suggest that troll in this case might have a less negative meaning than it usually would? Uh, maybe something like foreigner. Huh. Um, well, I mean, I've, I've suggested before, and I'll direct uh, you again, Doug, to uh, Armand Jacobson's book, uh, The Troll Inside You, uh, which is just this remarkable text that really investigates the uh, the idea of trolls uh, and sort of the, the mental space that trolls take up in Northern literature. Uh, and the idea is that, yes, absolutely, there's a sense that People from the north, uh, people from the the Finnmark area where Thorolf has spent much of his time in the last couple of episodes, uh, that that area is an area associated with a kind of trollish bloodline or a trollish quality. Um, and whether that is less negative is harder to say because I think what's being said there is that these people are not like us, right? So foreigner, but not in a less negative sense, right. in a in almost xenophobic sense. Yeah, I agree. Uh, that it's these people are not Norwegian. They're not part of. I mean, it's significant. We said a couple of times in this episode that Harold doesn't even think of Finnmark as being part of his conception of the space of Norway. It's a separate place, mm-hmm. populated by these figures who are human, but not quite, yeah. or Norwegian, but not quite. Yeah, uh, very that strange. There is that. The troll is the other, right? To use the term that you just brought up a little while ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way that the berserk is. And it's interesting that Ail's family is going to have both trolls and berserks in the bloodline. That's right. And they're able to get along with the people up north better than anyone else. Absolutely, right? Even Thorolf right, somehow naturally connects to these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's fair to say that there is a Sami and trollish connection in some of the sagas. But that doesn't mean that doesn't suggest a less negative meaning, right? That the the foreignness of the Sami and the foreignness of trolls are alike uh, a way of kind of creating a distance between them and the default position of a normal figure in the sagas, which is to say a human figure. Right. 
Good. All right. So uh, I think that about does it for the questions I wanted to ask uh, this time around. But uh, do you have anything else you'd like to add for the discussion tonight? Or are we uh, wrapping this up? No, I think we're in good shape. I think we've got uh, – there's a few things that we can talk about. Um, but I think many of them are going to be better saved for next episode when we actually might uh, meet a, a promising young man of Iceland <laughs> uh, coming from this bloodline, coming from this trollish and berserk and shape-shifting bloodline. That's right. Excellent. So if anyone out there would like to add something of their own, please get in touch with us on Facebook where we are Saga Thing Podcast or on Twitter where we are Saga Thing Pod. For more extended exchanges, you can reach us via email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Sure. I mean, or you can slip a message in a coffin and heave it overboard. We're bound to find it sometime soon on a shore near us. Yeah, but there there aren't any shores near me, so that's not going to work. Well, then you'll have to work a little harder. Maybe you'll have to make a special trip. All right. Well, that does it for now. Uh, if you've enjoyed our work on Saga Thing these past five plus years, please take a moment <laughs> oh, <God>. yes, to <laughs> review our podcast on iTunes and spread the word to all your friends. Yeah, but only tell the cool ones, please. Yeah. <laughs> and as always, a special thanks to Matt Smith for working hard and providing us with original illustrations for each episode. We're uh, we're building up quite a collection of characters for Ale Saga so far. Mm-hmm. I kind of look forward to seeing uh, Baby Ale in the lineup for next episode. Yes, as do I. And I also want to thank Donheim for generously providing us with a license to use his music. You'll be hearing more from Don Heyman on this podcast going forward. If you liked what you heard this episode and want to get more, well, I encourage you to check out his website, donheim.bandcamp.com, or visit his YouTube page where you can stream some of his albums in, in their entirety. That's mm-hmm. Donheim, D-A-N-H-E-I-M. Oh, good. I was going to suggest you spell it if you had Just in case. case, yeah. Yeah, uh, excellent. All right, so with that, we will say goodbye until next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Now, sometimes I just look at you when you're talking and I get lost in your eyes. Well, I mean... (laughs)